first live recording of the Kinks and Beatles Daily Deep Dive. I'm your host, Tony Fry. Things are a little bit different, but I'm, I'm really excited to try this out. So real quick, every day I'll be recording an episode on Facebook Live where you can participate by asking questions, sharing insights, or just telling me I'm wrong about something I said. And the videos will be archived on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash herohabit, um, as well as our YouTube channel. So be sure to subscribe there so you can watch each episode uh, as it will be supplemented with visual material. And then a week after the recording, uh, we'll put the audio of this session up on our normal podcast feed. So you can continue listening there if you prefer, but now you have the other options. And, um, you know, it's just going to be a lot lot more options for you uh, to, to find this this series. And also, I hope you'll share the videos with your Kinks and Beatles friends all over the interwebs. You know, share it in some groups uh, on on Facebook, share it on Twitter, wherever. Um, and then be sure to follow Hero Habit on Facebook or join our Kinks and Beatles face group, Facebook group so you can find out recording times as well as the premium bonus episodes that will cover topics beyond a single song. Okay, all that information, of course, can be found at herohabit.com so that you're not searching forever. Okay, enough housekeeping, though. Let's get on with the show, because today we are talking about Magical Mystery Tour, the song, which was released November 27th, 1967 in the United States and December 8th, 1967 in the UK. And I don't usually share both release dates, but Magical Mystery Tour is a bit of an odd release. In the United States, uh, a complete album was made of the Magical Mystery Tour tracks from the movie. Um, side A included all of the music from that television movie. All right, which was also called Magical Mystery Tour, in case you're unaware. Side B included all the singles released in 1967, which weren't included on the album to that point. So in the UK, uh, only the songs that would appear in the movie were released uh, as a uh, as a double EP. So basically the first side of the Magical Mystery Tour American album. But here's where it gets weird. When the Beatles were releasing their albums on CD for the first time, they ignored every single American release in favor of canon British releases, except for this one. So despite it being a typical American Frankenstein release, uh, it is now considered an official album, and some may argue one of the band's best. The other odd bit is that the double EP has a different track order than side A of the album. But on both uh, the album and the EP, the title track appears as the opening track. So over the next few episodes, we'll be covering the American release, and I'll go over the differences between the two releases in greater detail as we get to those differences. The song Magical Mystery Tour was the first track recorded for this TV project, which was conceived by Paul. And in fact, Paul came into this session with the song and a basic idea for the film, and the entire band fleshed out an outline of the film and did some takes of the title track. And one amazing factor of these sessions is the timeline. The final session for Sgt. Pepper's was Friday, April 21st, 1967. The first session for Magical Mystery Tour was Tuesday, April 25th, 1967. So these dudes put the final bow on what many consider the greatest achievement in rock music to that point, and arguably the most important album of all time. Took a three-day weekend and immediately began working on their next project, which included a TV film and the accompanying soundtrack. It's really an amazing work ethic. 
Um, on the first session, on April 25th, the band rehearsed and recorded three takes of the basic rhythm track. And re- I remind you, they spent a lot of this session actually outlining what would become the film. Paul's on piano, John and George on guitar, Ringo on drums. And they also arranged the various traffic sound effects that would be heard throughout the song uh, on this session. There were some loops, like the stereo panning of the uh, bus going through the track. That was all done on this session. So they have a basic rhythm track and all these sound effects to go along with it. The next evening, April 26, Paul overdubbed his bass part. John Paul and George and Ringo, Neil Aspinall and Mal Evans recorded a ton of percussion parts. And John Paul and George laid down some of their backing vocals. Now, officially, the backing vocals that were laid down here are more atmospheric. The, the, the hollers and yells and stuff from, you know, kind of deep in the mix. Um, because the uh, next day, April 27th, is when Paul records his lead guitar and John and George added the proper backing vocals. Okay? So... Basically, we have three nights um, to get this song in the can. Uh, The band took another long weekend and scheduled a brass overdub for May 3rd, 1967, which is the next week. Four trumpets were called into these sessions where Paul supposedly just sang the parts he wanted each musician to play. Um, There is some conflicting accounts of this session. Uh, It's told that... At one point, they sent the musicians out, and Paul and George Martin sat by themselves and actually wrote a part out because they weren't just they weren't getting what they wanted out of Paul just going, "Hey, sing right." Um, there's another account um, from a guy who wasn't there but knew guys who were there that says that one of the trumpet players got so frustrated with how slow these sessions were going that he actually wrote out a part, and that that was what ended up in the. Uh, on the final track, I would imagine is probably a little bit of both, right? Um, because according according to legend, that part that the trumpet player wrote is actually included in the in the in the final mix. But I don't know if it was the intro or something in the bridge or what what exact trumpet part it was that it was supposedly written by the trumpet player. Session took over five hours though, which is a long time for four studio musicians, these trumpet players. Um, to record a song that's less than three minutes, right? So you can tell there was a lot of experimenting going on in this time um, because this should have been a two-take, one-hour session. They went into overtime. They, they, they'd they only booked the guys till, I think, 10. So they considered this a three-hour session and then still went overtime. Um, but despite going overtime and being a long session, the horns are ultimately completed on this night. Mono mixes were handled the following day, and the song's pretty much complete at this point. So within two weeks of completing Sgt. Pepper, they had written and recorded the title track to a film project they had only just conceived. And say what you will about the final film, this is still a pretty remarkable turn of events. Uh, One thing to note about the recordings when you're listening to it is how certain parts were recorded at varying speeds. So if if you listen to the roll-up, roll-up section at the beginning... Those vocals have a distinctly different timbre than what we're used to hearing from the Beatles. Um, And that's because they were recorded slow. So that when you play at at regular speed, it pitches it up. It's the the chipmunks effect. 
Um, and this really adds to the psychedelic vibe of this track and sets the tone for the entirety of the Magical Mystery Tour album, which, despite not being intended as an album, has a pretty cohesive sound overall. Um, another aspect of the sound of this recording that is interesting to me is how different it sounds from Sgt. Pepper. Uh, as an album, a lot of, and remember, I'm talking about the American album, so both sides, side A and side B. Um, but as an album, it has a lot of songs that were recorded during the five-month span alongside Sgt. Pepper tracks. You know, we just finished this album on Friday, and we are here on Tuesday recording it. For all intents and purposes, even though there was no ever, never, never, never any intention of this being on the Pepper album, these are essentially the same sessions, right? And we have Strawberry Fields and Penny Lane, which were the first songs recorded at these sessions that are on side B. Um, so a lot of this stuff is recorded within a five-month span of, of early 1967. Um, so you'd think it would sound like a companion piece. But Magical Mystery Tour has like this airiness to it that Pepper lacks. There's more space in the tracks. It's, um, I would say, equally as produced, right? They are, they are doing layers on layers on layers. I mean, just this song alone, there's six people playing percussion on it. So there's a lot going on, but there's just this airiness to it, um, and in particular here in this title track. And even though it's equally as experimental, it feels like a totally different set of experiments. So it's similar and different to Pepper as Revolver is on the other side of the timeline, right? Revolver came before it. Um, but you would expect it to sound like Sgt. Pepper's, and it really, really doesn't. It's just a whole new attitude, which is incredible when you consider the timeline. Musically, um, the song begins in the key of E major and opens on a D chord with the horn fanfare going from D major to A major to E major, where it stays for several bars. So the first chord is a borrowed chord because D major doesn't appear anywhere in the key of E. Um, the closest thing would be a D sharp diminished chord. So basically we're doing a 4 of 4, that's the D, to a 5 to a 1. Okay, that's fine. Nothing major there. Um, <coughs> excuse me. It's in the roll-up section, though. Then we get some real Beatles chords. Two bars of one, that's your E major. Um, and then a major chord built off the minor third of the tonic. So what this means is that they've established a G sharp in the key, right? E major has a G sharp. So the three in the key of E is G sharp, in this case G sharp minor. So instead of going up to the third, and playing a three chord, they go up a minor third, which is a G natural, and do a major triad off of that. And it's not really borrowed from anything other than it being the relative major to the parallel minor, which is quite a leap for borrowing a chord. You know, usually we've gone two steps away. It's the five of five. It's the three of six, whatever that is. It's usually a chord borrowed from another key within the key of E, right? But this one, I'll say it again, is the relative major to the parallel minor. So to clarify that, we're in the key of E major. The parallel minor is E minor, which means they share a name, but they don't share a key signature. The relative major to E minor 
is G major, so that shares a key signature but not a name. You follow me? This seems uh, incredibly complicated to talk about. But it's, it's the only way I can conceive that where this chord comes from. If you're in the, um, in the live feed right now, this would be a time to chime in if I'm making any sense at all. Because this is a, a big leap. So the G is really out of left field. Let me play it for you. So we've got the E chord. And there's a G sharp right there in the E chord. Right? And that's what they're saying. Roll up. And then we got the G major. And then the A. So it's not really a crazy... If you're playing it on the guitar, um, you're starting with that E chord. You go up one, two, three frets. And then you go up to the fifth fret. It's just one, three, five. Um, but, like I said, this is the chord. That's the chord that belongs in the key of E. The G sharp diminished, if you're going to take that same route. So it's a really interesting... Whoops, it's a really interesting chord progression. Um, and it's... The type of movement, harmonic movement, you'll hear a lot from the Beatles. You know, they like to do this kind of movement. They like to do um, major thirds, stuff like that. This is not an uncommon type of progression, but it is still cool to hear. Um, for this section, the magical mystery tour is hoping to take you away. They short, sort of shift to D major and then just do some diatonic movement in the bass going down. Um, and the song goes into a halftime feel. And we talked about this uh, in the run of the mill episode a little while back where the snare hits on the third beat, okay? So instead of going one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, we're going one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four. And what it does is it makes the quarter notes sound like eighth notes, and it makes the snare sound like it's playing on two and four at half the speed that it's actually playing. So even though it's hitting on three, it's giving your ear the illusion that it's hitting on two and four where the snare should normally hit. Um, so they don't actually shift time there. It's just a halftime feel. And then for the instrumental break, they stay in E, but they're hovering on the five chord. All right, so we're on, on a B major chord, which is the five chord in the key of E. And then they do a two, seven. The mystery trip. Back to two, seven. Then to A, 4, to 5. So this section is the most harmonic of the entire song. No borrowed chords anywhere. Everything is in E major. But because of where they're placing the chords, it feels like a shift into some crazy dark mode, right? Because they're making the 2 chord feel like home. But really, it's 2. They started on 5, they've gone on 2, and you don't hear the 1 chord until the very, very end. So it kind of gives it this atmospheric modal kind of feel, but it's straight up key of E. Nothing crazy there. Um, then it's mostly, you know, rinse and repeat for the rest of the song. Despite the song beginning in E, it actually resolves to a D chord at the end because, like I said, that the magical mystery tour is hoping to take you away. That part is in the key of D. So it resolves to D um, at the end, which is in a, you know, different key. 
but you don't really feel it. It's it's done real seamlessly. Um, and then out of nowhere, for the fade out, they shift to a D minor and just vamp over the fade. And the Beatles were pretty fond of adding a musical bit right at the end that they were essentially throwing away. You know, And it happens a few times on this album. Think... Uh, Hello, goodbye. Hey, la, hey, hey, Lola. The fade out of Strawberry Fields. Um, this track, they they just do these things. These these they throw these musical ideas out as it's fading away. The last ten seconds of the song, um, and of course this one is pretty throwaway. It's just one chord that they're vamping over, so it's not really a new musical idea in that it's introducing new melody or anything. But it is introducing a totally new tonality as we're fading away that they're not going to do anything with. Um, so that's kind of cool but that's it that's Magical Mystery Tour um, tomorrow we're doing a Kinks song and then we'll we'll continue with the, the rest of this album every other day like we normally would again if you are joining me on live make sure to swing in there and uh, and and throw in some chats if you if you're so inclined and um, be sure to follow us at herohabit.com um, to find where you can follow us on social media so that you know what time we're scheduling all these live feeds. I'm going to mix it up a little bit to see what times work best for everybody to get the most people here. But, of course, you can find the archives of this and all that. So swing by herohabit.com and um, give us a call, 925-494-1739, if you have comments about this episode, or email me at kinksandbeats at herohabit.com. And, of course, um, Join us live on Facebook every day as we continue to do the Kinks and Beatles Daily Deep Dive live. All right. Have a great day. I will talk to you all next time.